Listen to what you've just sung. Take the world, but give me Jesus. All its joys are, what does it say, are but a name. They just, they just have a name, it just, but it doesn't really last. But his love abides forever through eternal years the same. Take the world, but give me Jesus, sweetest comfort of my soul. With my Savior watching o'er me, I can sing. I can even sing, though billows roll. What does that mean? Billows roll. That's talking about wave and wind hitting you. That's talking about the storm assaulting you. I want you to see this. With my Savior watching over me, I can even sing, though billows roll. Look at the next. Oh, the height and depth of mercy. Oh, the length and breadth of love. Oh, the fullness of redemption, pledge of endless life above. Take this world. My God's enough. Amen? Amen. Praise God. That's good. So as we come this morning to the book of John, once again, first, the first uh, uh, letter of John, I, uh, I, I just want you to notice that one of the great messages of John is not loving the world, but loving God. And uh, so if you don't have a sermon outline, please just lift your hand and uh, these gentlemen will get one to you. You really do need one. If you're new to us this morning, grab a pen and take your Bible and also take your notes and uh, we're going to study the Word of God um, for a few moments together before we come to the glorious table of our Lord. And as we've said, 1 John has several contrasts. One of the contrasts we've just sung about. You can either love this world and the things of this world that are passing away, or you can love the truths of eternity. You can love the God of eternity. You can love the values of our God that live not just in a temporal way, but in an eternal way. And that's what 1 John is really all about. Well, this morning we come to one of the most beloved verses in all of, John, all of 1 John, in fact, um, as we look at the forgiveness and cleansing from sin, we're going to be looking at 1 John 1, 9 in particular, um, and verse 7, but also verse 9. I can just say to you that 1 John 1, 9, that little verse, was one of the first verses of the Bible that I ever learned. And I learned it because our church quoted it a lot. Um, it is one of the key verses of understanding the glory of the gospel of Christ. So John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this glorious little verse is one of the ones that we come to this morning. If you're new to us this morning, or maybe you've been out running around in the world and, and we're, you know, you've kind of forgotten where we've been a little bit, let's review just a little bit so that we can all be together on the same page. The author of this little letter is the, the, both the disciple and the apostle John. He, he was a disciple following Jesus, but he was also sent out by Jesus, and that's what an apostle is, one who is sent out. The genre is a letter. It's a letter to all churches. And we see the importance of the writing style. Not all letters in the New Testament are written in the same style. John's is very, very artistic. Notice what we've said here. It's artistic. It's repeating. It's interwoven. The themes weave together. It's layered. There's different layers that get deeper and deeper or more intense. And we said it is... Does anybody remember how, we, how this is revealing? Excellent. Very good. Somebody gets a purple jelly bean back here. It's progressively revealing. Progressively revealing. It gets more and more revealing in each one of the sections as we go. Revealing of either falsehood or revealing of the truth. So he is writing to combat some of those things. In fact, notice here the setting of this is that this is the end of the eyewitness era. In fact, he is the last of the eyewitnesses that's alive. And so it's very important that he write to the churches as things are coming along, assaulting the gospel, as churches are starting to be a little bit confused. This was an important letter to circulate out among all of the churches of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and there were thousands of them at that point. 
and he was there uh, combating some things that were problems. There were doctrinal problems. You see, as always, there were false teachers then, just as there's false teachers now. And there was, because of those false teachers, there were also heresies. There were new heresies that were there as well. And so when we see these heresies, they have to be combated. And what we've noticed is, is that these heresies are the same um, today as they were back then. We have many of the same influences that are upon our theology. But there weren't only, only doctrinal problems, there was also what? Behavioral problems. The church had some problems, and we've just been singing about the difference here. The church had begun to love the world instead of loving God and others. And that's a, that's a tremendously great and poisonous temptation for the church. When we start to get our eyes on the world instead of keeping our eyes on Christ. In Hebrews we're told, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. We must fix our eyes on him. We must fix our affections on the things that are going to last forever, not on the things that are, as Jesus said, where there's rust and moth and, and thieves, all of those things come and take away these things that we cherish so much, the things that break, the things that wear out, the things that fade. Remember my red Acura that Dad said, you're going to have a pink car before this is all over? I mean, the, the, the things of the world fade. But here we see that John is helping us remember to love God and others because that never fades. Well, in verse 5, that up there at the top of the, uh, in the box on the page, let's go ahead and read verse 5. This is the central premise of the entire letter. Look at verse 5. Look what it says. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. I'd like to ask you, especially since you don't have a mask on, this will be so rewarding for all of us, but look, or some of you, and it's fine if you have a mask on, it's great, but, but I, I love to hear your voices read. Let's read verse 5 with strength this morning. Let's read verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. This is the word of John. John says, above everything else that you could know, is that God is light. God is truth. He's holiness. And there's no falsehood. There's no impurity with him. He is light. And in him is no darkness. There's no lie. There's no falsehood. And listen, there's no impurity with him. And if there's anything a human being needs to know, it's that. And so we come to see the nature of God. And as we see the nature of God, and he is reminding us, if you can properly understand who God is, that's the beginning place in understanding who you are. When we come to understand who God is, and that's what John wants us to see. And then we see these, these statements that are here, um, five if statements. There's five if, if statements, and I broke them out. Remember how I broke them out? Six, eight, and ten are similar, and seven and nine are of the opposite nature. So six, eight, and ten, look what verse six says. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Skip to verse eight. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Skip to verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. You see, these three statements are about sinful people. These are about people who have wrong ideas about sin and about themselves. And so they're either deceiving or they are being deceived. But then... There are two statements, if statements, in verse 7 and verse 9. That's where we focus this morning. Look at the first one in verse 7. Let's read it out loud together. Let's read out loud together verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And then look at verse 9. Let's read that out loud together. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
beautiful words of life about forgiveness and cleansing. Just the opposite of the falsehoods of verse 6, 8, and 10. So notice on your outline there, underneath the asterisk line, that kind of indicates that's from last week, was before that. Now we're coming to this week. Look at this. The Apostle John is contrasting, he's contrasting those who have, fill this in, a fake relationship with God versus those who have a genuine relationship with God. You see, friends, it was a problem then, and it's a problem this morning. It's a problem, that, and, and we, need to, we need to be aware that Jesus was making very clear to us that we can either be seeking to deceive or we can be self-deceived. In fact, one of the most disturbing passages of the New Testament is about not only the sheep and the goats, but also the wheat and the tares. Where eventually, it was, we stand before God that he could say, depart from me, I never knew you. But Lord, we did this and we did that. We did all of these things. But in fact, our hearts were never with him. Our lips were with him, but our heart was not. That's part of the warning of 1 John, is don't be deceived. And so notice here with me, the fakers either deceive or are deceived. They deal in falsehoods. Whereas the genuine neither deceive nor are deceived. They deal in truth. They deal in truth. And that's what the difference between 6, 8, and 10 and 7 and 9 are all about. And we see this very, very beautifully. See, this is very important because the last bullet point here is the greatest of the contrast between these two cannot be overstated. The greatness of the contrast cannot be overstated. You see, one is sinful and the other is forgiven. One is condemned and the other is redeemed. One has eternal life and the other has eternal death. You see, this is the the starkest of terms and this is the most weighty of terms. This issue of your salvation, of my salvation, there could be no other more important consideration of your mind and your heart And there could be no more worthy call of your life. Notice the passage that is there at the end in John chapter 5 and verse 24. Jesus is speaking and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, underline it, has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but what does it say? but is passed from death to life. Could not be more glorious words to pass from death to life. This is why Jesus would say, they, all who come after me, all who believe in me, though he die, yet shall he live. You've already passed from death to life. You see, the great spiritual death of being separated from God is the greatest and starkest of concern. So let's flip the page over and let's notice these two verses. I've retained them in our little outline there, left the indentation there so we can kind of see that they stand separate from verses 6, 8, and 10, and we've already read them. In verse 7, notice this, that both justification, that's salvation, that's a big word, both justification, advance the slide, guys, both justification, salvation, this is the idea of to be declared right before God. To be declared right before God. That's salvation. Salvation is when God looks at you and says, she is right with me. She is whole with me. She is holy like me. And it's not because of anything that she has done, but it's because of everything that I have done. This is God's salvation. God gives his salvation to his people. And so there is a great difference between the justification doctrine and the sanctification doctrine. And this is very, very important for you to understand as a growing Christian. And notice this, sanctification or growth is this, that we are growing in being like God. This is to grow in being like God. 
Now, right out there to the side, holy. So this is holy. This is holy living. This is living like God, set apart, not like the world. The world loves sin. The world runs in sin. The world runs in its folly, in the things that are deceptive, and the things that are passing away. But the things of God are eternal. And the life of God is eternal. And God calls us to live by faith in him for the things that are eternal. But justification is when we're made right before God positionally. Sanctification as we, as we are in this journey of life and we are being more and more sanctified. We're growing in sanctification. So one is a declaration that you are now right with me because of my salvation and your faith in my life. That, that, that's something that never changes. Sanctification is the journey. And so that is, this is the difference between getting saved and living as a person in a fallen world who is saved. This is that continual journey. And there's many, there's many new Christians that nobody has ever explained that to them. There's many new Christians that they just kind of think, well, I keep messing up, I, I must not be saved. And I want to say that when we keep practicing sin, when we keep running after sin, it's appropriate that we would ask ourselves, have I truly come to faith in Jesus? Because that, that's a, throughout the scripture, we see that. In fact, John is going to talk about those who practice sin. Those who practice sin are not, are not of God. And so if you're able to continue in sin and you're able to keep practicing that and you, you go to church, doesn't matter how much you come to church, doesn't matter how much you give, doesn't matter who your grandfather was or your uncle was or your, your grandmother was. I mean, you know, these saintly people around you, it, this is between you and God and whether or not you have been justified by God through Jesus Christ. So verse 7, look at verse 7. He says, but if we walk in the light, as he in the light, as he is the light, is, excuse me, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So in, tr in this vein, there is true salvation that, is vi that has visible proof. And that's what John is saying here. If we walk in the light. If we walk in the light. This is visible proof that you have been justified by God. One of the greatest visible proofs that you know God is that you obey God. And John wants us to understand that. You can't just, like in verse 6, you can't just claim to know God and then walk in darkness. Instead, he says in verse 7, if you know God, you're going to walk in the light. And there's many people that go to church every Sunday and somebody needs to tell them that. Because they, there's no difference in the way that they live their life and the pagan that lives next door. They watch the same shows, they laugh at the same jokes, they talk the same way, they, they live for the same reasons. There's just somebody that comes to church and there's somebody that doesn't. Now we need to be very, very cautious of that and very aware of that. And that's what John wants the church to see, is that just because people claim to know God but they continue to walk in darkness you can know that those people aren't truly with God. So this is an important picture that John is laying out for us. Instead, the saved life looks very different. So if we walk in the light, as he in the light, you see, this is growing in truth and holiness. We walk in the light. This is daily. This is the way you live your life. This is that walk. This is that practice. This is the direction. You're walking in a direction. And so this is all part of growing in truth. You remember the light is truth and holiness. Truth and holiness. There's, there's no lie and there's no impurity. There's no sin. So it's truth and holiness. We walk in the light. And then notice this as well. We have fellowship. Interestingly enough, it says we have fellowship with one another. Now, if I were to ask for a show of hands, how many of you have sometimes been confused by this? As you read verse 7, you say, well, why doesn't it say we have fellowship with God. Shouldn't it say we have fellowship? Look at verse 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, shouldn't it say, with God? Isn't that the most important issue there? That we have fellowship with God and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. But that's not what it says. In verse 7 it says, look what it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with 
one another. Now we're starting to see what true salvation really looks like. You see, there's the assumption in verse 7 in that top line that if you walk in the light as he is in the light, you have fellowship with God. That is having fellowship with God. But then it goes on and it says, we have fellowship with one another. So I want you to notice this. We have fellowship with one another. This is perhaps the greatest test. This is perhaps the greatest test. You know, there's that, that little phrase, you know, oh, how great it will be, how wonderful it will be to be with the saints in glory. But to be with the saints below, that's another story. <laughs> you know, we, we look forward to what it's going to be like when we get to heaven. We look forward to no more sin and you don't have to put up with her attitude or you don't have to put up with his pride or you don't have to put up with all these other things. The past. You know, that, but, but here on earth, we're still working that out. We're still working that out in the sanctification process. He said, you're mine. Now, let's prove it. You're mine. You've come to faith in Jesus. You are clean. You are holy. You are now my child. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of my beloved son. Now I'm going to let you prove it as we work out your salvation, my salvation, in your life. Now that's what true Christians do. And that's what John wants us to see. That there's a visible proof here. But there's this other beautiful aspect of verse 7 and 9 that our heart and mind so desperately need. Look what it says in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And then look what it says. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, below the word blood right there, the cross. You see, this is a very graphic way for John to remind us of what he's saying here. This is talking about shed blood. This is talking about murder. This is talking about death. This is talking about the Lord Jesus coming to be the death sacrifice that we might have life, the payment for us. And so when it says, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin, we see the glorious nature of how he indeed saves us. And he continually, if you haven't filled it in already, true salvation continually washes us from sin. True salvation continually washes us from sin, even as we continue in our sin um, in some degree or another. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 17 and 18. And Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament. In verse 17 he says, then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds, circle it, no more. This glorious picture of true cleansing, of true forgiveness. Look at verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of these, there, no, there is no longer any offering for sin. The offering is over because the sin has been removed. This is the glorious nature of God's cleansing. Look at Luke chapter 18 and verse 19 through um, uh, 14. I want you to see this, 9 through 14. Glorious passage of scripture, and it's on the screen in front of you or in your Bible if you would like to turn there. And, and we need to see the difference between the one who is self-deceived and deceiving others versus the one who is not deceiving anyone and who actually has the forgiveness of God. Remember with me that the Pharisee is the religious guy. The Pharisee is the guy who knows the Torah. The Pharisee is the guy who knows the prophets. He does all of the religious things. And the tax collector, listen to this, is the, is the little Jewish guy that sold out his brothers for the Romans because he gets to collect taxes for the Romans against his brothers, which basically was just a, a horrible 
setting, a horrible setting. They were known as being underhanded. They were known as being rejected. They were known as being unscrupulous in the way that they went after. I could name a few professions, but I won't. To compare them to, just kidding. Um, just kidding, Aaron, the lawyer in town. But anyways, um, anyways, just kidding. He likes lawyer jokes. Um, but the, the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want you to see this. In verse 9 it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Can you, well, no, you can't underline that. It's not on there. It, it, those who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. He beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Look what Jesus says. I tell you, this man went down to his house, what? Justified, Justified being made just before God. Rather than the other. That's, that's the tax collector, the big sinner, because of his coming before God in pleading. Goes down to the house justified. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In light of this, notice this and fill this in. Notice the attitudes. Notice the attitudes. One is pride, the other one is shame. And notice the actions. One is boasting while the other is pleading and confessing. That word confessing is where we are this morning. That we don't stand in pride, we don't stand in boasting, thinking of our self-righteousness. Instead, we come before God with the right... That's what Jesus wants us to see. That's what John wants us to see. And that's what we see in verse 7 and we see in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me on your outline there and just notice up there in the box on the top of the page. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. Can you circle those two words? He is faithful, circle that word, and he is just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, we need to recognize here that, there, that there's, a, there's an interaction here between us and God. We need to recognize that we're, we're seeing that there's this call to confession, but there's also a call of God from us for His response. So, it's us and God. And so notice this and, and recognize this in verse 9 there in the bold part. It says, God forgives because he is always faithful and just. You see, fill it in. He said what he said he will do. What he said he will do. That's why it says but God is faithful and just. Now, now think about this with me for a moment. God has said I will forgive you if you come to me through Christ in confession. I will forgive you of your sin. Now, God not only made that promise, so he's going to be faithful to that promise. He always delivers on his promise. He never misses a promise. And we also see in this verse that it says that he is righteous. He is just. And the word just literally means, it's the, it's the Greek word for righteous. And here's the idea. Double negative. God cannot not do this. God cannot be unfaithful to what he promised. He promised this, and because he is holy, and there is no darkness in him whatsoever, because he is perfectly righteous, he cannot leave a promise unfulfilled. God has promised in this. And so when, when we see in verse 9, this is very important because we feel the guilt of our sin. We know our sin. It's always before us, and here it is, and we're coming back to God. And we say, 
Lord, here I am again, and here it is again. And if we will confess to God our sin, we see that he is faithful and righteous, faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because he cannot do otherwise. Uh, He cleanses us from all unrighteousness, as we've already noticed. Now, these six points that are here are very practical Maybe, maybe for you to just kind of flesh this out in your own life, to live this out in your life. Number one, that you just need to understand that your relationship with God is a real relationship. It is a true relationship. There are some people that think of God as dealing with a computer or dealing with some inanimate object. Or it's, you, know, you, you don't think about reacting and acting with God. You don't think about just like a human You know, if you treat someone around you as an inanimate object, as something without life, and you 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 just you go on on your terms and with your thoughts, and there's not another side to the relationship, that just doesn't work. And strangely enough, there's a lot of people that treat God that way. They kind of are in a mode in their religion where they show up at church and it's just all about what they do, what they think, and everything else. And to some degree, they flip a prayer toward heaven thinking that that's kind of what everybody does, and there's, there's no relationship. God, you see, it's not about us being religious, and the picture is a true relationship. The Pharisees were very religious. They kept all of the law. They did all of these things in quote-unquote devotion to God. And when they came before God, they boasted in themselves, not coming before God with any truth of what he had said, Coming in their righteousness, we see that God intends, fill this in, God intends intimacy and interaction with us, with you. Notice number two. So long as we are in this flesh, we will sin against him. This is a reality of being in a fallen world and in our flesh. And some of you would say, whoo-hoo, whoopee, pastor said I'm going to sin, so we can just keep going. Before you think that, go read Romans 6. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Strongest Greek, strongest negative in the Greek. May it never be. How shall we who have died to sin continue to live therein? Now the picture is, is that God's forgiveness does come. We are justified in him, but we continue on this journey in this life. And his great joy is to lead us out of a sinful existence into a holy existence, getting us ready to see him face to face. And true Christians are on that upward path. True Christians are serving and growing in their sanctification. That's what John is saying here. We're not walking in darkness. We are walking in the light. And so we see Romans 6 and Romans 7. 7 talks about it. Romans chapter 7 is such a helpful passage to me because he, he described Paul, the Apostle Paul is writing about, man, I sometimes do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I should do. What is the solution to this? And we see the agony of his soul, of his sanctification process. And he's just being very honest about it. But he says, ultimately, the great joy is this is that who can deliver me from this? Thanks be to God. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who delivers me ultimately. And we see his grace even more as we are in the sanctification process of mortifying, mortifying our flesh, killing our flesh, killing our desires of this life, and being alive to the things that are eternal and true. Look at number three. When we sin against the Lord, our fellowship with him is compromised. Now notice there the word fellowship. This is our intimacy. This is our our nearness to him. When we have sin and we regard sin in our heart, we, we are not right with God. You say, well, we've been right positionally as a saved child of God. Yes, but but my fellowship with him is not is not continuing. Now, I am I am my name is Andrew Coleman. My dad is Clell Coleman. My mom is D. Coleman. And I will forever be their son. Nothing is ever going to change that. But you know what could change? If I disrespected them, if I dishonored them, 
If I neglected them, if I was offended by them or I offended them, my fellowship with them could definitely be affected. And all too often it is in this life. When we, I, I look across this room and I know that, that we all struggle with relationships. We all struggle, but that's because of a fallen world and sinfulness and it's sinfulness of our own heart, sinfulness in somebody else's heart. And we, we see how our fellowship is compromised. But nothing will ever change the fact that I am Paul Coleman's son. For the true Christian, nothing will ever change the fact that, that I am a true Christian in Christ. And that is, yes, that is proven by my walking in the light, ever how sometimes frail and ever how sometimes struggling it may be. John is saying, be careful that we are children who walk in the light because this reveals indeed the forgiveness of God upon us. Notice number four. When this relationship is compromised because of our sin, here's the warning. I want you to see this warning. Refusal to submit and confess causes your misery index to climb. When a Christian regards sin in their heart and holds on to sin in their heart, the Holy Spirit brings conviction. And the Holy, Spirit conv Holy Spirit's conviction will come and, and be, in French we would say, an inquiet, an inquietude. It's a, there's a lack of peace. And this, this lack of quietude, this lack of peace, can grow as we continue to resist the Lord. And we know that the Word says that whom the Lord loves, He chastens. That means He spanks them. He disciplines them. And so what do you do with a rebellious child? What do you do with a child that has an attitude problem and, and is refusing all that is right and holy and good? You come and you correct him so that his heart will be right. And that is exactly what we see that God does with us through the conviction of his spirit and through his love. He brings to us a great need to confess to him. Psalm 32 is one of the most important psalms that deals with sin. And I want you to see this. Psalm 32 in verse, four, or verse 3 and 4. Notice what it says. For when I kept silent, that means not confessing, not confessing my sin. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Right out there to the side, Holy Spirit conviction. That is the Holy Spirit's conviction that you're wrong. You're wrong. You're wrong in that attitude. You're wrong in that action. Come to me. Let's get this right. I can help you. As a young man, I remember being in this church and started to walk with the Lord my senior year in high school really started just giving him everything. And the Lord started to just convict me of things that were wrong in my heart and in my life, things where I had rebelled against him. And I sat somewhere right over here along with most of the other youth, Sunday after Sunday, as the Lord was convicting me about stealing gasoline from my employer. I had worked for a deacon in this church who had a large company and and I did computer things for them, and I did errands for them, and I did other things for them. And, and there were vehicles all over the place, and they had gas pumps behind the building. And as time went on, I got so used to filling up vehicles that I was over there a lot at night, running the computers at night. And sure enough, my car was sitting there. So I started filling it up too. Now, I knew it was wrong because every time I went to put the key into the gate to get my car into the back of the building, something inside was saying, don't do this. You see, a way of escape was being provided to me through the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying, don't do this. But my tank was on E. And I went on, and I went on, and I went on. And the Holy Spirit 
in his tremendous mercy and grace was making me miserable until I finally said, I cannot do this anymore and I have to get this right. And I remember going to Mr. Debray on a Sunday night. I said, can you and I sit down and talk? He said, sure, and we met right up there in the balcony. We went upstairs to get away from everybody. And I looked at him and I said, Mr. Debray, I have been stealing from you. You trusted me. And I have failed you. And I have asked God for his forgiveness and I ask you for forgiveness and I pulled out an envelope and I handed him an envelope as best I could imagine. Um, what I had stolen and more and I said would you forgive me he said yes I forgive you listen friends I wish that was the only time I had to go to confess something to someone many times on this journey I've had to go and say hey I said the wrong thing I had the wrong thing in my heart I'm sorry I was insensitive to you. I'm sorry that I treated you this way. My friends, when God convicts you, listen, he's not being mean. He's not being harsh. He's calling you to a better life. He's calling you to safety. Listen, he's calling you to blessing. You think you've worked it out how you can save. And he says, I own everything. Honor me and see if I will not bless you. So friends, listen. The misery index just gets higher when we're silent about our sin. But oh, what God does with confession. Look at verse five or number five. God, God restores our proper fellowship with him through our confession and repentance. You're not restoring anything. God is. And that's an important thing to understand. Is that God leads us to confession. In obedience, we interact with him. And then he restores us. Acts 3.19, look what it says. And this is on a broader scale of Peter calling the Jews to repent. But look what happens when we repent and we turn to God. He says, Therefore, repent and return that your sins may be what? Wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Some of you, the misery index is so high because you've been holding out from God. You've refused to be with him. You've refused to read his word. You've refused to be in prayer. You've refused, for some of you, to confess him publicly as your Lord. Some of you have refused to be baptized. And I just want to call you, I want to say, listen, it is, it is a privilege to obey God, to confess your sins, and to say, oh, how he will restore. Why hold out? upon him. Now I've given you several verses there for you to look up this week, this week and spend time with them. We've studied them in different ways. Psalm 40 is a really big one. That's a, a glorious psalm for you to see the tremendous renewal that God brings as we confess our sins to him. Now look with me at number six, finally. God's cleansing is perfect and complete is perfect. He completely cleans. See, verse 7, the blood of Jesus, that's that sacrifice, that's the, the death sacrifice, the substitutionary atonement for our sin. The blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from, look what it says in both of these verses, in 7 and 9, the word all is used in both of them. All sin. I mean, it, there, there's no sin that he cannot and will not forgive except rejection of his son. He will not forgive that. For that, you will go to hell. Rejection of his son. Look at this. Cleanse us from all unrighteousness, verse 9. His 
cleansing is perfect and complete. And we gather to celebrate that. Every Sunday when we come together, the reason that we're here is so that we might walk in the light. We hear the words of truth. We let the words of truth undo what CNN and Fox News and whoever else has programmed you. Undo what YouTube, undo what Facebook, TikTok, and everything else has done. We, we come to leave those things behind. Take this world. My God's enough. That's the picture. So that's what John is saying to us, that we would continue to run to God, listen to God, respond. Listen, respond to God. And let Him cleanse us from all sin. That our fellowship would not be broken. That we'd not have an estranged relationship with our, an estranged relationship with our heavenly father but that we would have all of the intimacy all of the forgiveness that the burden would be lifted from our shoulders that we would walk with him oh listen there's no thing on the earth that can satisfy like the presence of the holy spirit in your life as you come to him in intimacy confessing your sin and him forgiving your sin. There is no other thrill that, that competes with that. May we walk in the truth. So the question is, look at the key questions here. As we come to the table of the Lord, do you walk in light or darkness? That means how do you live your life? Do you live your life as a fraud? Do you live your life, be here on Sunday, but there's all this stuff that you know God is saying no to and you hold on to it? Or do you come before him and you lay it down? That's what he calls us to. You see, second question, do you live in proper relationship with God and, oh boy, here we go, his people? Do you live in proper relationship with God and his people? Do you have hatred in your heart towards some of his people? Do you have neglect in your heart towards his people? Listen, in our church, we believe in meaningful membership. We believe if a Christian is a Christian, he needs to be connected and loving others. That, that, that's throughout the scripture. It says right here, we have fellowship one with another. And I'm just so proud of so many of you that have just heard this and said, but you know, I have an independent spirit wasn't really wanting a church family, didn't see the need, wasn't interested. But man, I've come to see what God's word says and I've come to see others here that are, that are trying to make friendships, trying to make relationships that are, that are growing in that. And I need that too. I'm, I'm just thankful that God is winning heart after heart after heart. And if he needs to win your heart on that, I pray that you will stop being a Sunday crowd person and you'll start to think about what does it mean to be really a part of the church? That you actually pray for people in your church. You actually get to know them. You know their name. I mean, that's part of the reason we do the photo booth. We have the photo booth right back over here. Why in the world would we take pictures of each other? Why do we do it? Is it so we can post them on Instagram? No, no. The picture is, the idea is, so that we can get to know one another. You know, I mean you'll plaster a picture for 12 million people to see on photo but but you say well, i don't want the church to have my picture <laughs> i understand some of you are just getting used to things and you're wondering if we're you know crazy but, but i just want you to understand that this is the picture that we have fellowship one with another that this is god's grand plan not only with him but with one another this brings him glory this brings him honor and so Proper fellowship with God and his people. So the question is this. Do you confess your sin and turn away from it? Do you confess your sin and turn away from it? You see, the only sin that is forgiven sin is sin that is forsaken. Forsaken sin is forgiven sin. That's sin that we turn away from. So when we confess our sin, we are... We are forsaking it. We are leaving that. There's no way to sit there and say, oh, I'm planning to sin. That's Romans 6, 1. 
I'm just planning to go on with this. I'll confess it now, but I'm, I'm planning to go on with this. No, when we, when we confess our sin to God, we say, okay, I, I, there's a plan for me to turn away and to honor God. As all of this, you, you need to see this at the end. For those of you that maybe are new to, to everything that we're saying, all of this begins with believing in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for your sins. That's the reason that he came. That's the reason he preached what he preached. That's the reason he did the miracles to show he was. And then he goes and he lays down on a cross and is raised up for the world to reject. He dies and says, it is finished. And then he rises from the dead, setting you free from the law of sin and death. This is the reason we celebrate the Lord's Supper. This is the reason we rejoice in the truth. Let's pray together. I'd like to ask you to stand. Father, I believe that there's some in this room right now that say, I need to finally deal with God on things that the Holy Spirit has been convicting me. I need to lay down and stop resisting. I need to turn to God instead of turning away from God in my heart. Maybe it's an area of forgiveness towards somebody else. Maybe it's over an ethical issue, a moral issue. Maybe it's over a discipline issue. God is calling you to pursue him and discipline and you've refused. I don't know what your thing is, but I hope and pray that you have brought it and found the way to bring all of your sins to Jesus. That you might live on the upward path of walking in the light as he is in the light and not in the darkness. If you today need to say, Lord Jesus, come and be my Lord and Savior, come to me. Lord, make me yours. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me from within. Make me yours. I hope and pray that you will do that today. I hope and pray that you will come to the Savior in faith. And I hope and pray that as we come to this table in a few moments, that our hearts will be ready. That we will be a people that do not hold on to sin, but that we confess it to God. Father, I pray that as we even sing now, I pray that you would be working in our hearts. And Father, I pray that we would be a people who turn to you in all things. And the Lord, that we honor you because you are worthy of this honor. In Jesus' name.